Welcome to Grim Gossip. Before we start the show, I want to give a proper warning. The episode you are about to hear may include grim details about assault, rape, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Today's case is about Suzanne Capper, who was born in 1976 and had one older sister, Michelle. Her mother, Elizabeth, and stepfather, John, said she was a gentle soul, very impressionable, and wanted everyone to love her. Since turning 10 years old, she often babysat for a neighbor girl named Jean Powell. In 1990, the girls' parents, Elizabeth and John, separated. Michelle tended to stay with either of the two of them, but Suzanne spent a lot of time jumping from place to place with their mom, their stepdad, local authority, or couch surfing with various friends and family members. Not long after, the girls went to go stay with their stepfather. Around this time, Suzanne began to skip school a lot. Her attendance in the last two years of school was described as erratic. She began spending most of her time at Jean's house, who was dealing drugs out of her home and participated in the handling of stolen cars and car parts. Jean's house was known as a hot spot for drugs, parties, and sex. Michelle lived with them for a while too, but moved out quickly because she didn't like Jean's, quote, evil new friends, unquote, specifically Bernadette McNeely, who was Jean's neighbor. Eventually, Bernadette and her three kids moved in with Jean and her three kids, where they shared a bed in the dining room downstairs because the bedrooms were, quote, full of children, unquote. Even though Michelle stayed with their stepdad full-time, Suzanne continued to stay at Jean's regularly, even though they bullied her. Michelle even stated that, quote, It was not that she was scared of them. It's just that she would do anything for them. She pampered their every whim, unquote. John tried to talk to Suzanne about her living situation and tried to convince her to stop going over there, but she refused. She did contact her mother one day, asking her if she could go live with her. Elizabeth, of course, said yes, but she asked Suzanne to give her a week so that she could get a room situated for her since she had just moved into a new apartment. So Suzanne went to stay with Jean in the meantime. Frequent visitors of Jean's house was Jean's ex-husband, Glenn, Bernadette's boyfriend, Anthony Dudson, who was 16 at the time and who was also sexually involved with Jean, Jeffrey Lee, who was a frequent purchaser of Jean's drugs and who was also sexually involved with Jean, and Jean's younger brother, Clifford Pook, who was said to have been Suzanne's ex-boyfriend. In November of 1992, Anthony and Bernadette had discovered that they contracted pubic lice and had to shave. Bernadette immediately blamed Suzanne, saying that she must have brought it into the house and she had sometimes slept in that bed. Bernadette also claimed that Suzanne had stolen a pink duffel coat from her, which is similar to a parka. This is when Bernadette began to get the adults in the house to turn against Suzanne. On December 7, 1992, Suzanne was lured to Jean's house under the ruse that a boy she liked was there 
and wanted to see her. As soon as she walked through the door, Anthony grabbed her and held her down while Glynn shaved her head and eyebrows as punishment for having brought pubic lice into the house. She was then forced to clean her hair up off the floor and throw it away. Glynn then placed a plastic bag over her head and walked around her while hitting her on the head. But the other three wanted to take part as well, so they all laughed as they shouted at her and took turns hitting her with the buckle of a belt and a large wooden ornamental utensil. Then Jean and Bernadette viciously attacked her, bringing her to the floor. When Suzanne was on the floor, she curled up into the fetal position, which is when Jean and Bernadette took turns kicking her, and again began beating her with the large wooden utensil and hitting her with the buckle of the belt. They then wrapped the back handles around her neck so tightly she went unconscious, which is the only reason why they took the bag off. They tied her to the bed in the kitchen to continue to beat her with their weapons. Suzanne had been beaten so badly that one of her arms would hang at her side completely useless from there on out. She was then taken to the bathroom where she was forced to shave off her own pubic hair in front of them in an attempt to humiliate her for having humiliated Bernadette and Anthony. Jean then locked her in the cupboard and left her there overnight. Over the next seven days, the six assailants put Suzanne through a multitude of torturous performances. Suzanne did not sit in the cupboard quietly, though. She sat in there and cried and screamed when she had the energy. Jean and Bernadette were afraid that their children would hear this, so they relocated Suzanne to the abandoned house a few doors down. Here, they tied Suzanne to an upturned bed with chains, ropes, and USB cords. They had also stuffed socks into her mouth to muffle any cries or screams she may try to make. While Suzanne was tied to the bed in that abandoned house, they injected her with amphetamines to keep her sedated while they burned her with lit cigarettes. In order to disorient her, they blindfolded her, put headphones in her ears, and played rave music at full blast, specifically a song called, Hi, I'm Chucky, Wanna Play? Only taking them off to tell her, quote, Chucky is coming to play, unquote, when they were about to begin their torture. In one instance, they put Suzanne in a bath full of disinfectant liquid and scrubbed her body with a stiff brush until her skin started to come off. In another instance, Anthony said that he stood in the doorway with Jean when Clifford took Suzanne's gag off. He grabbed a pair of pliers, then told her to open her mouth before telling her, quote, Right, I'm going to rip your teeth out, unquote. Clifford then began to hit Suzanne's teeth with the pliers and began to try to rip a tooth out of her mouth, but instead of the tooth coming out, it snapped and chipped, leaving the nerves exposed. He hit the teeth a few more times, then put the pliers back in her mouth to try to pull again, having to place his palm on her forehead in order to get more leverage, until the tooth came out. He laughed at what he had just done then went back for more teeth. While they had Suzanne tied up in the abandoned house, 
she had a close encounter with someone who might potentially have been able to save her. David Hill, 18 at the time, was asked to sit in at the house. While he was there, he heard Anthony shouting obscenities in the back room. When David asked what was going on, Jeffrey didn't even hesitate. He led David to the back room where Suzanne was and showed David what was happening. It was clear that Suzanne was being tortured. David was later left alone with her. He would later confess, quote, She asked me if I could help, but I told her I couldn't. I asked her who she was. She told me her name was Suzanne. She asked me if I could untie her. I said I couldn't do anything, unquote. He would later claim that he was too afraid to intervene, saying, quote, I thought they would batter me. If I'd said anything, they'd all have got to me, wouldn't they? I didn't know what to do. I was too shocked to do anything, unquote. One day, her sister's fiancé, Paul Barlow, had some car troubles right outside of the house where she was being held captive. Jeffrey and Anthony saw his struggle and, being the good citizens that they are, went out to help him get his car up and running, all the while knowing that his future sister-in-law was just inside being tortured. At this point, it had only been a couple days and Suzanne's family was beginning to become concerned. They were getting ready to go to the cops and report her as a missing person, but before they could, Suzanne's six torturers caught wind of it. They agreed that Suzanne needed to go, and it needed to be soon. On the morning of December 14th, just seven days after she was initially taken and held captive, they forced her into the trunk of a stolen white Fiat Panda. Bernadette, Jean, Anthony, and Glynn drove 15 miles away to a narrow lane on the outskirts of Stockport, where it was just a vast land. Apparently, Bernadette giggled the entire way. When they got to their destination, they pulled Suzanne out of the trunk and pushed her down an embankment into a patch of brambles. Bernadette then poured gasoline all over Suzanne and made several attempts before successfully lighting Suzanne on fire. She then began to sing, quote, burn baby burn, unquote, over and over again. They went back to Jean's place after they thought Suzanne was dead, where Jeffrey and Clifford were waiting for them. But unfortunately for them, Suzanne survived, as battered as she was to this point. She managed to crawl up the embankment and walk about a quarter of a mile before someone found her at 6.10 a.m. Barry Sutcliffe and his co-workers were on their way to work when they came across Suzanne. She thanked them profusely while telling them, quote, Over there, in the field, they burnt me, they put petrol on me, unquote. They took her in their car and took her to the nearest house to wake anyone up for help, who happened to be Mr. and Mrs. Coop. They called for an ambulance immediately and tried to soothe Suzanne while they waited. Mr. Coop said, quote, both her hands appeared like ash. Her legs were just like raw meat, and her feet appeared to be badly charred. I was struck by how polite the victim was. 
She was constantly thanking my wife for her assistance, unquote. Mrs. Coop said, I instinctively went to put my arms around her, but she pulled away because she could not bear to be touched. Her head was shaved, and there were recent, not new, cuts to her head. Her face was almost featureless. Her hands were red, raw, and black at the fingertips. Her legs were red from top to bottom. She couldn't bear anything near her legs." Unquote. While Suzanne was there, she consumed six glasses of water, but someone had to hold the glass for her because she was unable to hold it herself due to her injuries. When the ambulance arrived, she was rushed to the hospital immediately. In the hospital, she was able to give the names of the six individuals who had done this to her, as well as an address. She then fell into a coma. The police were on the case with the information Suzanne had given them. They arrived at Jean's house that same morning around 7.30 a.m., where they were met with a complete wreck of a house. There was trash everywhere and stolen car parts all over the house. Upon further investigation, they found Suzanne's hair still in the trash can, a pair of bloody pliers, and Suzanne's teeth, which is said to have been kept as macabre trophies. Initially, all six of them denied any involvement with what had happened to Suzanne, but Anthony broke. His father encouraged him to tell the truth, and so he did, which led to all six of them being arrested immediately. Detective Inspector Peter Wall led this investigation. He said, quote, As the story began to unfold, we just couldn't believe it. I kept asking myself how one human being could do this to another, unquote. And that police officers, quote, wept as the extent of Suzanne's suffering was revealed, unquote. The police and civilian staff at the station collected money to send flowers to the hospital for Suzanne. Three days later, on December 17th, the six appeared in court in front of a judge, indicted for kidnapping and attempted murder. But the following day, Suzanne died in the hospital, which brought on a murder charge instead of attempted murder. The following year, in November of 1993, the trial commenced. Multiple experts took the stand to testify, one being Dr. William Lawler, a pathologist, testified that Suzanne suffered 75 to 80 percent burns on her body, consistent with having gasoline poured on her and set on fire. He said on the stand, quote, it was clear from the outset that Suzanne was unlikely to survive. She suffered widespread burns that led to severe complications internally." Unquote. He also said that her death was inevitably caused by these burns. The coroner testified, quote, "...it is clear that this young girl must have suffered a great deal of pain and had no chance of survival, but she did fortunately survive long enough to give information which led to the people mentioned being charged with her death." Unquote. He also said to her parents, quote, I offer you, not just on my behalf, but on behalf of the whole nation, my very deepest sympathy 
and condolences at this tragic happening to your young daughter, unquote. During trial, all six assailants turned against one another, placing heavier blame on each other while trying to diminish their own actions that took place. Jean stated that she sat in the car while the others set Suzanne on fire. She said, quote, I was numb. I was scared, unquote. She then told the court that she had locked Suzanne in a cupboard, quote, for her own safety, unquote, and that she had loved Suzanne like a sister, adding that she can't even stand violence and, quote, I don't even smack my own children, unquote. Bernadette claimed that she held the canister of gas, but Anthony had grabbed it out of her hands moments before Suzanne was set on fire. She also claimed that she injected Suzanne with amphetamines to protect her from being injected with heroin. Anthony told the court that Glenn was the one to set Suzanne on fire. On December 16th, just 22 days after the start of trial, all six who had denied the charge of murder were convicted after about 10 hours of deliberation. Justice Potts said, quote, Each of you has been convicted on clear evidence of murder, which was as appalling a murder as it is possible to imagine, unquote. Jean, Bernadette, and Glynn were sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 25 years before parole. Jeffrey was sentenced to 12 years, and Anthony was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 18 years before parole. Clifford was sentenced to 15 years in prison. In 2012, Jean's sentence was reduced by two years after having shown remorse, becoming a model prisoner, and helping to prevent a jailbreak of other inmates. Jeffrey appealed to sentence, which was reduced by three years. In 2002, Anthony appealed his sentence, which was reduced by two years. He tried to appeal again, claiming the reduction was insufficient and that the Lord Chief Justice, quote, had failed to reflect the continuing obligation to have regard to his welfare, unquote. Lord Justice Kennedy dismissed the appeal in 2003. In 2009, Anthony was moved to a minimal security facility. Bernadette, who is said to have had a romantic fling with prolific serial killer Myra Henley while in prison, has since been released. Same goes for Jeffrey and Clifford. And that is where the case ends. If you guys enjoyed today's episode, there's many more to come. Hit the subscribe button so that you get notifications when new episodes drop. If you have any suggestions, send them my way at grimgossippod at gmail.com and follow me on Instagram at grimgossippod. All websites used for the research is in the show notes if you guys want to take a deeper dive into this case. Thank you for listening. Until next time.